0: Well, good morning. And uh, this morning, we're concluding our series uh, that's been titled How to Win at Life. And as I thought about these last couple of verses in 2 Timothy, I thought about this question, what does it actually mean to win at life? And I don't mean like how would we answer that question if we were in our community groups and careful to make sure we gave like the right answer. I I mean it. In the honesty of our own thoughts, what do we really think that it means to win at life? How do we measure winning? Do we see it like in the lives of people like a, like a, like a Bill Gates or a or Tom Brady, maybe in people that we know that are successful, that have wealth, power, fame, and, you know, it's hard not to go down that road because everything around us tells us that this is how we measure winning. And we've all, um, we've all heard like those kind of jokes about uh, we've never seen a, a, a Brinks truck following a hearse on the way to the cemetery. But, you know, there's, there's a real glaring truth to these jokes. If our lives were to go on forever, if we were never to die, then success and power and fame and so on could actually become the measure of what it means to win at life. But life doesn't go on forever. And Jesus once said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but suffers the loss of his own soul? And he cut, he cut right to the heart of this question that there is something that's greater than anything that this world offers to us. The Westminster Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That there is really a goal or a purpose to life for each one of us to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what it means to win at life a victorious life that doesn't end at death, but that goes on for eternity. And we saw this last week when Paul wrote that at the time of his departure from this world had come and that the awaiting for him was a crown that the Lord would present to him. And by that Westminster Catechism definition, Paul had actually won at life. But it's hard to imagine That any casual passerby who saw Paul in these last days of his life would actually think that this man had won at life. Our text this morning brings us to what are the final words that the world would ever hear from this great apostle as he sits chained in that Roman dungeon awaiting his execution. And according to tradition, this is the... Mamertine prison in in Rome during the time of uh, when Nero was the emperor. And if you were to visit that prison today, the dungeon is just a hole in the ground that's only accessible by a ladder. And so cold and damp and poorly lit, this 66-year-old man, his face probably pale and sunken in from Poor sunlight, lack of sunlight, poor nutrition, sits all alone awaiting for his execution, having been charged with something like subverting Roman authority or something like that. And he sits there writing his final letter to his younger coworker, Timothy. And as I read through these verses, these verses, I found myself like drawn to the mindset and the character of this man who's facing death. And not so much what he did, but why he did. And that underlying character that motivated Paul to respond as he does. Basically, what is it that made this man tick? And I think that if we don't understand the man himself and the events that brought him to this place, we can never truly see into Paul's mind as he writes this letter to Timothy. And so I just want to paint just a broad picture of who is this man in this Roman dungeon. Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee, a member of this elite sect of Judaism. And as, as John Gwynne mentioned last week, he saw the followers of Jesus as being blasphemers against God and against Judaism. And so he committed himself to, to putting an end to this movement by arresting the Christians and having them brought to trial before the Jewish authorities. But something happened to Paul that changed his life from being a persecutor of the Christians to becoming a follower. This Jesus, who had been crucified from, by the Romans... Appeared to Paul. And I don't want you to just like think of this as just a Bible story. I want you to think about it for what it actually is. This is an event that actually happened in the life of Paul. And historians agree that something dramatic had to have happened to this man in this man's life to cause this radical change. Paul says that Jesus risen from the dead, appeared to him. And it was more than just Paul. Jesus' family members doubted him. They were not his followers. But after his death, something changed. For so Jesus' death, he doubted. It was only after Jesus' death that James now becomes a believer. Why? Because Jesus appeared to him too. And Paul documents all of this in his letter to the Corinthians. He says that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he appeared to the apostles, then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to 500 people at one time. And then Paul says, lastly, he appeared also to me. This is the explanation for that dramatic change in Paul's life. It wasn't his religious studies in Judaism that made him a follower. It was an event. The risen Jesus appeared to him. And so Paul spends the next 30 years of his life preaching the message of Jesus Christ and establishing churches throughout Asia Minor and parts of Europe. And eventually he's arrested and he's put into a house arrest in Rome. And this is where the book of Acts ends for us. But the scholars seem to agree that Paul was eventually released from prison, and he spent the next couple of years planting and revisiting some of these churches. But eventually he's arrested again, and he's brought back to Rome to stand trial. And this is where we find him as he writes this letter to Timothy. And the overall message of this letter that he writes is to encourage Timothy to protect and to preach the message of Jesus Christ. But now, in chapter 4, Paul looks at his own death and what's going to become of his ministry after he's gone. He doesn't focus on how to defend himself or on his circumstances or how he had been wronged. But even standing at death's doorstep, Paul is focusing on the gospel and his trust in the Lord. There's no pretending. These are the candid and the sincere thoughts of a man who's waiting for his execution. Which brings us to the text for this morning. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 9, he says, to, He's writing to Timothy and he says, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, having loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. <laughs> Excuse me. Timothy is in Ephesus, and Paul is saying to him, Come to me. He's lonely, and he's suffering, and people have deserted him. This person, Demas, it may not be that he had completely abandoned Christ and the faith. Paul had referred to Demas in other letters as his co worker. It might be that Demas just was worried and cared more for himself and his own comfort and safety, and he was frightened by what was happening to Paul. So he goes to a safer place. Paul is facing death for proclaiming the gospel, and it just might be that anyone associated with him was at risk. And we know nothing about Christians, but Paul and his continued care and concern for the churches sends both him and Titus to oversee the churches. Even in his final days, Paul's heart continues to be his concern for the spreading of the message of Christ. And then in verse 11, he says that only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And there's a lot of speculation about these last days of Paul. But one thing that is certain is that those who are close to him are no longer there. Some deserted him. Some Paul sent off to minister to the churches, and he says that only Luke is with me. Now, Was Luke allowed to visit him in the cell? Was Luke somehow supporting from the outside? We don't know. It's not certain. This is the man that Paul referred to as the beloved physician. And he accompanied Paul during his missionary travels, and he documented those travels in what we now have as the book of Acts. And then he says, bring Mark because he's helpful to me in ministry. And again, we see Paul's focus on ministry. And there's some background to this. When Paul started his missionary journey some 20 years earlier, he had took Mark and a man named Barnabas with him. But it wasn't very far into the journey that Mark had second thoughts, and he he left them and returned back to Jerusalem. So several years later, Paul is preparing again to go out on another missionary journey, and Barnabas insists that Mark come with them, but Paul refuses, and this causes a split between the two men, and Paul went off with a, a man named Silas instead. Mark had failed Paul, but Barnabas believed in him. And so Barnabas took Mark and they went off on their own missionary journey. And I want to just pause for a second because I think there's a, a very valuable lesson here in both of these men, Barnabas and Mark. Acts chapter 9 says that when when Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. This this name Barnabas actually means son of encouragement. And what Barnabas did for Paul he was now doing for Mark. He believed in him when no one else did and because of Barnabas Mark continued despite his initial failure and eventually Mark redeemed himself in the eyes of Paul and years later Paul actually mentions him in his letter to the Colossians as being a co-worker and I think there's some encouragement here for all of us we've all failed in our efforts to serve the Lord but just like like Moses and David, Peter, and so many other characters that we see in the Bible, God uses the weak and the broken for his purposes. And even when we fail, and we will fail, God never gives up on us. There'll be times when we, like Mark, will find ourselves in the shoes of someone who's failed. And at other times... The Lord will call us to be like a, like a Barnabas, to, uh, to bring encouragement to somebody in need, and it's so important for us to remember that God uses all of the things in our lives, the good and the bad, as part of His plan to help us to grow, to become more like His Son. And then in verse twelve, He says, "I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come." Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Paul is sending Tychicus to to Ephesus to replace Timothy. And he's asking Timothy that when you come, bring these things that he had left at Troas. And it may be that Troas was the city where, where Paul was arrested. And so either by choice or by force, These things were left behind. He's saying to Timothy, when you come by, bring them with you. The cloak, because winter is coming. The scrolls were probably probably written notes or letters. And then he says, especially the parchments. Parchments were stretched animal skins that were used for more valuable documents. And many scholars believe that these were likely copies of the Jewish... Uh, scriptures, our Old Testament. And so alone, cold, he says, bring me my cloak to keep him warm. But he says, especially the parchments. If Timothy was to forget all else, Paul does not want him to forget the scriptures. We're looking, if you can see it, deep into the soul of this man. He's on death row. And his priorities are spreading the message of Christ and the comfort and the strength that he finds in the scriptures. Just like Job, who said, I esteem thy words more than my necessary food. And then he says, Alexander the metalsmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. And some wonder if it may have been in this city of Troas where Alexander turned Paul in to the authorities and had him arrested. And Paul is now telling Timothy to go to that city and he's saying, beware of this guy Alexander. But look what Paul says about this man who did him great harm. He's not vengeful towards Alexander. He doesn't rail against him. Instead he says, The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Paul trusts the Lord for what Alexander has done to him. The justice that's due Alexander because of his actions, Paul is just trusting that the Lord is going to handle this. And this this reflects actually what Paul had written years ago to the Roman people when he wrote to the Romans Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, what an example of a life that's been transformed. It's easy for us to quote scriptures and to put Bible verses on our refrigerators, but it's totally different when you're facing death and you're talking about the man who put you there. Or, or at the very least, someone who has done you great harm. And even in this dire circumstance, Paul finds peace in leaving the justice due to Alexander in the hands of God. And then he says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Perhaps there was like a a preliminary phase to Paul's trial. Maybe he was being charged on two different accounts. It's not known. But in either case, he made it through this first part of the trial without harm, to which he says, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. He's on trial for his life, and he says that no one was by his side. They all deserted him. And they were probably afraid. Nero was feeding the Christians to the lions, to the animals in the, in the Colosseum. He was setting them on fire to light up his gardens. And here's Paul on trial in Nero's court, and none of his friends from Rome stood up to testify for him. But he says, may it not be held against them. He forgives them, just like, just like Jesus forgave those who crucified him. And then he says, but the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. He's standing on trial, for the spreading the message of Christianity. And here, standing before those who are going to judge him, he doubles down and uses this old opportunity to proclaim the message of Christ right there in the court for everyone to hear. And this would just virtually seal his death sentence. But something greater than his own life was at stake, that those present would hear the gospel message of salvation the message of eternal life for all who would believe it. Paul knew what it meant to win at life. His desire to glorify God and his assurance of eternal life, this was what was the driving force of his life, even to the point of preaching to those who would condemn him to death. Years earlier, years earlier, Paul had written to the Philippians, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what should I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And these aren't the words of a madman. These are the words of Someone that historians say is one of the most influential people in human history. And these are the deepest, most authentic thoughts and actions of a man whose life was completely turned upside down because he met the resurrected Lord. He no longer feared death because he had met the one who conquered death. And he seems to conclude this letter by saying... The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He knows he's condemned to death, so he cannot be saying that no physical harm is going to come to him. In fact, Calvin says that Paul is actually speaking about spiritual attacks that might weaken his faith or weaken his resolve. He says, the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul had written elsewhere that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For him to die would bring him into the presence of God. This is a reality for Paul. He has genuine peace and assurance his, of his eternal life in Christ. Yet, here, even facing execution, he's giving glory to God and he's drawing comfort from the fact that God is going to bring him safely into his kingdom. Paul knew the Lord in a very real and intimate way. He knew that in all things, the good and the bad, that God was with him and directing his steps. And we see the faith of this man as he puts his trust in the Lord. But we can also see Paul's Humanity, as he closes this letter. You know, we sometimes picture Paul as a lone ranger, someone who single-handedly founded all of these churches. But if you look through all of his letters, you can count more than a 100 friends and co-workers that Paul mentions. What we see is a man who loved and a man who was loved by his friends. And even though some of them had deserted him, Paul's affection just shows through as he remembers them. He says "An Aquila, in the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Jubilus greets you as so do Pudens of that cell. I'm guessing that even just thinking of these people or just actually writing their names actually brought some measure of comfort to Paul. The greatest form of love is to lift the burdens of others and to help them to enjoy the life that God has planned for them, to help others to win at life. Paul was a blessing to these, and these were a blessing to him, just as our families and our relationships are blessings to us, and we are blessings to them, encouraging and guiding and caring, simply just helping others to win at life. This is what happens in our community groups, as we develop friendships and we support and and encourage each other to achieve that fullness of life that God has intended for us through both the ups and the downs of life. And you know that right now in our church, we're having community group sign-ups. And if you have never belonged to a community group, never thought about it, I really encourage you to think about it. Community groups are these smaller, intimate groups where we get to know each other and we can help each other to grow in our walk with Christ and in our daily lives. A place where where the, the Marks and the Barnabases can be encouraged and give encouragement to one another. And then Paul mentions Crescens, Linus, and Pudens. These are names that are never mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. We don't know anything else about them, but God knows them. And that's how it is for the overwhelming majority of us. The no-names who faithfully serve the Lord in the shadows, serving in places and doing the works that no one will ever see, but God sees. He doesn't measure the way we measure. Do you remember the story with of the woman that gave the two copper coins, and Jesus said that she had given more than all of them because she gave from a heart of total devotion. Our service may seem to be insignificant, done in the private, in the secret places, but Jesus said that your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So I want to be, encourage you that in the end, God is going to reward All of those who are his. And then there's one thing that I don't want to skip over here. Paul says that he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. There are several places in the book of Acts where it clearly indicates that Paul had this miraculous gift of healing. And yet, Trophimus is not healed which raises questions that are well beyond the scope of today's message. You know, we struggle at times with the idea of God's sovereignty, and we don't understand why God allows certain things to happen in our lives. But here, Paul is content simply to say, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. And the last words that we would ever hear From this great apostle, he says, The Lord be with your spirit, and grace be with you all. The man who, like no other, dedicated his life to bringing the message of God's grace to the world. We're all undeserving, but in Christ, God grants us unmerited favor, grace, our very existence. Every breath that we take, and especially the forgiveness and the acceptance that we have into God's family, are all because of his grace. And it's fitting that the very last words from this great apostle are, grace be with you all. And so, this returns us back to the question, what does it mean to win at life? Paul's life was transformed that day on the road to Damascus. He realized the truth that he, along with all of mankind, are hopelessly lost in a life that ultimately ends in death and eternal separation from God. But on that road, the resurrected Lord met him, and the fullness of God's plan for Paul and for all of mankind was revealed to him. That apart from anything that he had done or ever could do, and solely because of Christ's death on the cross, he was now forgiven, and he was accepted as a member of God's family and a member of God's kingdom, in, in God's kingdom. He was a child of God with the promise of eternal life, and he knew this to be true, because God had raised Jesus from the dead. Paul's life was transformed. He spent his lifetime bringing this message of good news to everyone that he could, and now he was going home. He had won at life and his victory celebration would last for eternity. And so, what's the application for this in all of us for us? I think it's obvious. Imitate Christ. What was available to Paul is available to all of us. And it's not that we look at Paul and we grit our teeth and muster up all of the strength that we can to imitate him. No. Paul's transformation began when he submitted himself to Jesus as his Savior and Lord. This was the first step In a lifetime of him following Jesus as Lord, and his life desire to know Christ. There was nothing superhuman about him becoming a child of God. What he had is available to every one of us. It's not about our human efforts to please God. It's about us getting to know the one who died on the cross and then rose from the dead. And his invitation is for all of us, that we would know him just as Paul knew him. And in knowing him, that our lives would be so transformed that even in the darkest seasons of life, and even that day when we stand at death's doorstep, that we, like Paul, also say with that true peace and assurance, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great apostle, for his life and his faithfulness that has influenced countless numbers of us throughout history. Most of us here could raise our hands and to be counted in that number pray that the examples and the teachings of Paul would cause us to mature, that we might glorify you in our lives. Help us to grow into such maturity and faith that, like Paul, we would desire to be with you above all else. May you do a mighty work in our lives, Father. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Everybody say.